Sardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I've had quite the week and actually had originally planned on having an interview uh, last week, actually, for this week's podcast, but that fell through due to scheduling issues on my side, actually. I kind of hesitated on recording this episode just because I'm not as comfortable uh, doing solo episodes. I really enjoy bantering with someone back and forth and just kind of that conversation and camaraderie around fraud that can happen a lot of times when you're talking with someone else who has a passion in fraud. So I also enjoy introducing my audience to people that they may not know in this industry who are great thought leaders and and doing really interesting things. So that person will be on the podcast soon. But I actually, when I was on the fence today, I was like, oh, well, I didn't release an episode last week, so I really should. And then I saw that I had a message on LinkedIn and I checked it really fast and it was from a listener who sent me a picture of her dogs on a leash and saying that dog walking time is podcast listening time and that she was listening to the last episode of Fraudology. And I was like, okay, this is obviously the universe or whoever (laughs) telling me that I need to get on my microphone and do this. So here I am. There's so much going on in the fraud space. I find myself talking about so many different things on a regular basis that sometimes my head is spinning and I get really tired because I'm working on so many different projects. And then like this week, I wrote an article for CNP on an update on refunding fraud that's happening and provided some best practices and advice from top retailers that I've been working with on these collaboration calls that I've been hosting every other week on what they've found to be helpful. I mean, there's certainly not a clear solution on refund fraud issues. I think every company has to do an audit of their policies and work together with their customer service and their warehouse to really understand the full scope of the issue and then, you know, make adjustments, study the data, et cetera. But I think first you need to create the data. One of the examples in the article that I wrote was that, several merchants have started to implement a policy with customer service that they need to input a reason code for the dispute in a way that can be measured. A lot of times it's, you know, an update in the system or in your CRM of having some kind of 
refunding reason code. So that way you can start to see, hmm, we have a really high spike in people claiming that the package didn't arrive or it was our highest spike that the package didn't arrive. We changed some of our policies there and now we're starting to get claims that there was an empty box or damaged goods or we're starting to receive packages in our warehouse of empty boxes or boxes containing things that we don't sell. I mean, I've heard everything from animal crackers to little green army men, pinata candy, a can of peas, all kinds of things being sent to warehouses. And and really what the fraud there is, the refund fraudsters are banking on the fact that a lot of warehouses don't process items to be returned right away. The SLA is usually, you know, a couple days or more. They'll study that or they'll track the tracking number. And once the package has been delivered to the warehouse, they'll call the customer service and say, my package was delivered. I need my refund. They'll provide them a refund before the warehouse looks in the box and sees that it's not at all what they were returning. It's not the laptop that they said they were returning. It's not the designer handbag. It's not the, you know, XYZ, whatever was, was purchased. These kind of things are things that, you know, you really need to study. I mean, I have definitely been a proponent of learning what the fraudsters are doing. And that's why I had Chase Park on the um, podcast early on and why we've done a webinar on refunding for CNP that they recently uh, started replaying and um, having available and on demand. I can link all of these things in the show notes so you guys can check them out if you're interested. But I do think that that's a good way to have some of the information and understand exactly what they're doing. But you also have to work internally with different groups and really help them understand that this is a fraud problem. This isn't a supply chain issue like a lot of companies first think. Something that kind of bummed me out, actually, and I know I should be happy about this, but the editor-in-chief at CNP, you know, we've worked together for six years, and even though I'm not formally on staff anymore, I still contribute articles once a month and support them on content creation behind the scenes, and he mentioned to me a week or two ago that the number one article on the website from the last year has been the first article I wrote about refunding fraud, which... I don't know if I'm proud or not proud, but I was the first person to really call attention to this problem in the industry on a, you know, large scale. I kind of put two and two together between interviewing a a low level fraudster on my previous podcast and working with merchants on the increase of DNR did not receive claims and then discovered on Telegram and other social media sites, this world of refunding and how just how much they're offering it to consumers. And you put that together with an increase in e-commerce fraud and packages legitimately getting lost in the shuffle with how much I meant an increase in e-commerce sales and just how much, you know, more packages there are in the ecosystem. So then that provides more opportunity for them to be lost or delivered to the wrong address or whatever the case may be, or delivered broken. Those legitimate claims are happening and these fraudsters are taking advantage of that and essentially amplifying it. And this is really causing a lot of issues beyond the retail refunding. I mean, obviously delivery drivers and food delivery especially is just being hit by this really, really hard. And I did try to warn several companies about this last year. And I think that they were aware, but they may not have understood the full scope of it. 
They now do. I actually was recently reading an article by frankonfraud.com, which I interviewed Frank McKenna on a previous podcast and think very highly of him. But he posted this article about the title is passengers of Uber will need to verify their true identities with driver's license checks. And I found this interesting. So this is a good example of a company who looked at where their holes were or where the issues were and are making a change in their policy to hopefully reduce some of those issues. So essentially for anyone who sets up an account either to ride on an Uber or to order Uber Eats there, if you are paying with, or if a customer is paying with an anonymous form of payment, that can be a prepaid card. I know that there's a, quite a big increase in prepaid cards recently with several merchants. Some of them are government issued prepaid cards. It's kind of hard to know, but any of these, you know, there's also other anonymous forms of payment, obviously. I mean, crypto can be one. I don't know if Uber accepts that, however, but they're requiring that they need to upload a driver's license, a state ID or a passport before booking a ride or getting Uber Eats. And I think this is really interesting. This shows that they dove into the data and obviously it must have been a larger problem for people who are using anonymous payment methods. I know that prepaid cards are pretty common in refunding schemes. So they obviously have a bin identifier. That's a whole other conversation, but this is just one idea. I'm not recommending that, that all companies do this because you're going to have different types of problems and different business models. This wouldn't make sense for a retailer that's shipping physical goods to have someone, you know, upload their ID. But when there's a real life interaction with someone else in the marketplace, that this can be really helpful. So, you know, one of the quotes from the vice president of product management at Uber is that we think this adds an additional layer of identity verification for criminals who intend harm. This is going to be a huge deterrent for them as they would not want to go through that identity verification process. I hope that's right. I mean, we also know that there are a lot of really good fake IDs out there. So it kind of varies on what technology Uber's using to verify driver's licenses. Definitely from just conversations I've had in the market, I think some of these tools are better than others, but it's definitely, you know, become helpful, especially in marketplaces. Another interesting point was that they're also hoping that this ability to ask for extra layer of verification on anonymous payment methods is they're also hoping that this is going to reduce carjacking. I didn't realize this was such a problem for Ubers. In October, for example, 40 Uber drivers were victims of carjacking just in Chicago. So Uber launched this service to remove the anonymity of users of the app that were providing anonymous payment methods. I think it'll be really interesting to see how this goes. And again, I, I think that this is a really good example of a merchant looking at the data and really trying to understand where are the anomalies. A merchant I had a conversation with yesterday, which it was a Sunday, but of course I was having conversations with merchants on the phone on Sundays. What else would I be doing? It was a beautiful spring Sunday. So of course I was, but she said something so interesting and gosh, I wish I had it pulled up from my notebook, but I think it was something like a lot of people say that fighting fraud is about looking at patterns and it is when you're down on the ground, right? Like when you're looking at manual review and you're, you're looking at a specific order, looking for patterns is really important. But when you're talking about fraud strategy, kind of that seeing the forest through the trees piece, it's more about looking at anomalies. It's more at looking at you know, things that 
stand out rather than patterns. And I thought that that was really interesting. And this person loves to geek out about fraud strategy as much as I do. And I'm hoping to get her on the podcast soon. But I just found that really interesting around refunding and, you know, this passenger verification. And I I really hope it helps Uber. And I hope that other similar companies, you know, if this works, that they implement it as well. I mean, I would be cautious to say to be as um, optimistic as this vice president of product is just because I know that fraudsters often don't give up right away. So they'll probably, you know, look for ways to get around it, whether with fake IDs or other situations, you know, other ways of getting around the system, but, or maybe not having anonymous payment methods. I'm not sure, but they're so good at finding those loopholes. And just because you introduce something new doesn't mean that they're not going to find another loophole. But I do think that it's important to do something to at least reduce the volume of how much this is just impacting businesses like crazy. So I thought that was really interesting. I'll definitely link my refunding article, Frank's article about Uber fraud and also Uber refund fraud and what they're doing to deter it, as well as the webinar I did with Chase last year in the show notes. I am saying this out loud, so I remember it also. <laughs> Let's start with some of these Ask Carice Anything questions. This first question has come up more than once in the last year, and I keep telling myself I'm going to write an article about it, but, you know, I add it to the list of things that will get done eventually. But this is why one of the reasons why I have the podcast is so that I can provide information. This is just so much easier for me than writing an article because I write very thorough articles. I was joking with the editor of CMP the other day, like, this is why I can't write a blog because I don't know how to write short articles. I like to be really thorough and detailed. (laughs) I can't do surface level. And he said, well, that's why it's good that the podcast format's good for you. (laughs) So Here's the question. Why is there more card fraud in the U.S. than in any other country or in other countries in general? This has come up so much. It actually one of the first times that I had to really answer this and actually provide like a presentation of this is when I was brought in to consult for a luxury brand in 2019 that had had e-commerce sites in other countries, in Asia Pacific, in Europe, even in Latin America, I think, and never really had a fraud problem, despite having a very well-known brand that is covetable on the black market or the gray market, the marketplaces, etc., and very high dollar expensive items. Once they came to the U.S., their fraud just exploded. And even though they replicated the same product and technology that they were using via their gateway or their PSP in these other countries, it just didn't do enough at all to identify fraud in the U.S. and their chargebacks were high and then they overcorrected with a manual review team that was reviewing, I think it was like 47% of their orders. It was almost 50% and then canceling about 20% just because they were, you know, trying to overcorrect the problem. When I was in their European offices, There was one person in particular that was very, you know, angry about this issue and they were in finance. So I understand it. And they really wanted to know why is there more fraud in the U.S.? Like what's going on? And they said, is it because there's more people in the U.S. that commit fraud? And I said, well, actually, a lot of the fraud 
that's committed in the U.S. is actually taking place overseas in Eastern Europe and, and other areas in Africa and other areas of the world. Then they were even more confused. I think what we're really talking about is, you know, why is there more fraud on U.S. credit cards, right? Because that doesn't mean that it's the fraudsters are in the U.S. It means that it's U.S. credit cards. And generally, when we're talking about e-commerce fraud anyway, it's e-commerce websites. Honestly, there's more fraud in the U.S. in in almost every area. I mean, if you just look at the government fraud that's happened in the last year on the, the PVP loans, the Small Business Association loans, the unemployment funds. I mean, that's just been rampant and is a whole other topic, but there's just a lot of fraud in the U.S. There's, you know, people are curious, especially for companies that start out in other countries and come to the U.S. or start in the U.S. and expect there to be as much fraud in other areas and then go to other areas. And they're like, wow, we can kind of put this on cruise control. (laughs) So there's several reasons for it, but there's three or four that I really narrowed down that I think contribute to this the most. But I'd be really interested to hear what other people think. And if, you know, you feel like I'm missing something because that I'm always wanting to learn just as much as I like to share information. So I think one of the biggest contributors of there being so much credit card fraud or just payment fraud in general in the U.S. is how the payment landscape is set up in the U.S. There's so much competition among issuing banks, credit card companies, banks that offer debit cards, etc. And, you know, I learned with working with international companies that in a lot of countries, the average consumer may have two or three payment cards, but they're almost always with the same bank. They're very loyal to the same financial institution. There isn't as much competition among banks to be what credit card brands call top of wallet. And this is something that is very, it's top of mind for all credit card issuers. It's we want to be the credit card that is chosen by our cardholders to be put on file with the biggest e-commerce companies or be put on file for their rent or their utilities or, you know, whatever it is. You've got, you know, bank A competing with bank B. And how do you get your cardholders to select your card over other cards? Well, one is the benefits that you offer your cardholders and, you know, interest rates, et cetera, as well as miles or points or whatever, you know, the benefits are there. Another one is excellent customer service. Sometimes that means that when a customer calls, okay, a lot of times that means that when a cardholder calls their issuing bank and says there was a problem with a charge or even asks and inquires about a charge, like I talked about on the last episode about chargebacks, the bank wants to go above and beyond, right? So one of the things that they can do, and and one of the only things sometimes when a customer calls to complain about a transaction at a merchant or wants to know what they purchased at a specific merchant and the credit card company doesn't have, you know, a copy of the itemized receipts that they don't know is to issue a chargeback that can, you know, sometimes it's a fraud chargeback. Other times it's not. But even when someone's card is stolen, I've heard from people that live in other countries that they'll call their bank to, you know, file fraud and they're almost interrogated and said, well, and, you know, asked, well, are you sure you didn't have it? Are you sure someone in your household didn't use it? Are you positive? Are you sure that, you know, you didn't accidentally make this purchase? Like they're very, not combative, but they just, they don't just take the customer's word for it. But I really think it all comes down to this competition and the need for top of wallet. And, you know, the rewards for being top of wallet are so huge. It's, you know, interest, it's 
you know, the amount of dollars that are in your system. It's it's just, it's so much that that's really the end goal. If that's their end goal, then they're going to do everything they can to please their customers. They don't want their cardholders to say, oh, I'm not going to pick that card because the last time I had an issue with somebody that charged, they wouldn't get my money back for me. And a lot of cardholders assume that the credit card companies are actually you know, fronting the money, right? Like, oh, I called my credit card company and they gave me my money back. Like, aren't they awesome? I actually had a question from somebody asking me about a specific card brand that has been recently advertising zero fraud liability to their, to potential cardholders. Yes, the commercial does include a frog, at least in the U.S. I'm not quite sure. I think it's because frog and fraud sound so similar, which... Funny side note, when my daughter was four or five, I first moved to Seattle to be with my long-term boyfriend, who is now my husband. And I've shared the story before, or I've shared that part of my story before. And we went out to dinner um, the first night that I started a job in Seattle. And yeah, my daughter was probably like four and a half. Oh, I don't even think she was four yet. Anyway, and she's now a teenager, so it's hard to imagine. But I was talking to my now husband and saying, you know, I was really exciting. I caught fraud on my first day. And my daughter said, well, do I get to see it? We couldn't figure out what she was talking about. And she said, the frog you catched, do I get to see it? And I had to explain to her that I wasn't a frog catcher. I didn't catch frogs. I caught fraud. <laughs> so well, now whenever I see those commercials, I obviously think of that moment. I'm 90% sure, and I have not verified this with friends that work for this card brand, but I'm 90% sure that at least on card not present transactions, that zero fraud liability essentially just means that they issue chargebacks to the merchant. Now, Granted, this card brand is a closed loop system, so they're generally a little bit more fair to both sides because both the cardholder and the merchant are their direct um, customers. But still, I cringe every time I hear that. And I know that in the past there have been credit card brands who have offered money back when the price of specific items go down at merchant locations. And I learned in a roundabout way that that all that did was just trigger chargebacks. I haven't seen those kinds of commercials recently, but it's very frustrating as someone who's been on the merchant side for coming up on 20 years at some point soon. Just that that is, you know, kind of taken advantage of as a marketing play. Now I can be, I can stand corrected on that. Maybe they do take the full liability on all of those, but I would be surprised because other card brands certainly haven't had that. They'll advertise zero fraud liability and then quickly send the charge back off to the merchant to cover it. So very good customer service there on their part for their cardholders. But another reason, you know, other reasons why there's more fraud in the U.S. is because there's little to no regulations on either side, the issuer side, the merchant side, or even the card brands. I think in some ways that it's good that we're unregulated just because definitely seen in other parts of the world, what can happen when people who don't understand the payment process get involved and write rules. However, the less regulation you have, the more things just, you know, security isn't prioritized, right? And so that's part of it. I think, too, that the regulation piece is more around, like, you know, there's not a lot of privacy regulations or anything like that that's then, you know, directly tying to reduction in fraud. 
And I mean, to be fair, when a lot of governments, you know, try to try to make these rules, they'll just go to the card brands and ask them. And often the card brands recommend their own tools, which in some countries, those have been very effective. But that leads me to my third point, that in other countries, especially in Europe and the UK, customers or consumers really prioritize their convenience. Or I'm sorry, I got that backwards. In the US, consumers and cardholders prioritize convenience over security. In other countries, such as Europe and the UK, they prioritize security over convenience. So what that means is that in a lot of cases, cardholders are signed up for alerts from their credit card companies every single purchase in other countries. Sometimes they have to approve it via their phone, via their mobile before the transaction will actually be approved. This is completely normal in several, in a lot of countries and consumers prefer that because they feel safe. But here in the U.S., they really do prioritize convenience over security. A lot of consumers don't want to do participate in 3D Secure. They don't want to provide an extra password within an iframe while they're on a merchant's site. They just want it, you know, be confirmed, go through and move on with their day. And I'm somewhere in the middle, to be fair, but... You know, another way that, you know, consumers prioritize convenience over security, a way that that comes out is through, you know, using the same password on multiple accounts. There was actually an article that somebody sent me today that Akamai published a study in October of 2020, and they said that 60% of credential stuffing was detected, but retailers are the number one target. This is definitely changed from banks and other, you know, areas of sectors of online. But I can back that up for whatever it's worth with anecdotal information that there are a lot of companies that are really suffering from account takeovers and especially the newer ones that I talked about in a previous episode. It was the episode about diagnosing account takeovers. And I'm actually going to be holding a private webinar for a large group of retailers to get to see a demonstration of how this works from the dark web of how the malware is pulling out all the session data and the cookie information and then how easy it is for fraudsters to input that into malware. If you are a merchant, I can possibly get you on that on that list. It's it's a relatively small group. It's probably like 40 people, but I think that that will be really interesting and I may be doing more of those in the future because I do think it's really important to educate people, but we are keeping them closed for right now because partially there's there's not a lot of the fraudsters aren't aware yet that that this side of the fence knows all about it and i know i i've talked about it a little bit at high level but as far as like the specific programs being used etc so we're just kind of keeping it off of public forums for right now so you can definitely reach out to me if that's something that you're interested in i think you know the using the same password for more than one account not opting into 3d secure as cardholders or two-factor authentication these are all things that cause fraud to be much higher in the us than in other places also each cardholder has more credit cards from all different banks obviously in their wallet in the us than i think in any other country of the world so there's just a lot more credit cards too in the market there was a post that PJ Rohal of About Fraud shared the other day on LinkedIn where it talked about the distribution of compromised payment records by country. And PJ said, when you're not proud to be number one, and by far the U.S. was number one, it was 62.71% of compromised payment records belong to U.S. consumers. 
The next country underneath that was China with 14.2% or 14.02%. And then the UK had 3.24%. So this is why these are all the accumulated reasons. There may be a few others I've missed, but those are like the three key reasons that I feel like it's much higher here. There's also a very large friendly frog component. We, I live, I know that there's a lot of people that listen to this outside of the U.S. So try not to be as U.S. centric, but again, number one for fraud. So we're going to talk about it a lot. And most enterprise companies anyways have websites within the U.S. So it is applicable to a lot of people. You know, the friendly fraud component, we live in a consumer centric world. It's very customer friendly. The customer's always right is a trope that's said way too much, in my opinion. And I think that consumers are just kind of used to getting their way. They're used to calling and saying, oh, I didn't get it and getting a refund. Or they're used to calling their bank and you know, claiming whatever they want without having to sign a fraud affidavit, without having to prove anything on their side. You know, merchants have to spend time putting together all this documentation to prove that the cardholder used the card, but the cardholder doesn't have to do anything. So these are things that really contribute to this very large, giant problem. Nobody's really telling these cardholders no. I mean, there is at least one card brand that has started to limit the number. Oh, this actually started a few years ago, but they started to limit the number of chargebacks that a consumer could issue per card, per card per year. And this was something that I actually pushed for quite a bit in my previous uh, role before becoming a consultant. And because I was able to pool and get together a lot of merchants and collaborate on it, we were able to advocate for this. This card brand, you know, looked into it and they said, okay, you know, the next year they came back after the first conversation that we all had in a big private room at a conference. They said, well, we've decided to limit, you know, the number of chargebacks per card per year. And there was like this level of excitement in the room. Merchants were, you know, really happy about it. But then the card brand said, well, we, you know, we looked at how many chargebacks our cardholders issue in a year. And I think they took out like fraud events. I can't remember, but this was primarily around like friendly fraud issues. You know, people that were abusing the chargeback system as a cardholder, the average number that they came to that this is the limit that they made was around 45 chargebacks a year per card. I mean, if the average U.S. consumer has five to six cards, that's like what, 240 chargebacks you can issue. And that's assuming they're all on that same card brand. I don't think, I don't know if other card brands have official rules on that, but I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to share that to like anger or upset people, but just to be real that this is, you know, obviously a problem and obviously one that I talk about often, but I do think that it is important to understand the why, if not just for you to provide it to your leadership, because I'm sure that they're curious or they've asked you this question on more than one occasion. Hopefully this gives you a little bit of context. So moving on to another question, I got a string of like 10 or 12 questions from one person. I'm going to try to pick out the ones that I think you'll be most interested in. I'm not going to spend the whole time on all of them, but I did find some of them fascinating. So they were really talking about friendly fraud and how it's becoming an issue for their company. And they provide goods that can't be refunded. So they, they can't be returned, I should say. So this is really becoming a problem because whenever there's a chargeback and they lose it, they can't, you know, recoup the funds. They can't re- 
recoup the product. And this is an issue that a lot of companies have, but they do have a specific product that just once it's used, it's used. If I go into any more detail, I think it could be obvious. So I'm trying to be a little more vague, but they said in regards to disputes for friendly fraud, do the credit card companies write off anything less than $50 per transaction or do they bother looking? So starting with that question, it really varies. There are some issuers that have a limit at $20, but they issue chargebacks over that. There are others that are at 25, 30, 50. I think 50 is kind of one of the averages. I'm not sure. It really depends on the issuer and the volume of chargebacks they have, internal policies, the type of cardholder they have, right? Like are their cardholders making really large dollar purchases on the regular or are you know, microtransactions popular. There's just a lot of factors that go into those decisions from what I understand. So you can't really assume that it's a specific, it's not the same for every bank is what I'm saying, but there generally is. I think I've said this before, but for companies that have, you know, under $50 transactions, it's important for you to get a hold of your TC40 report if you are able. And I say if you are able because I once wrote an article for CNP several years ago, uh, really talking about the TC40 report and how integral it is and how important it can be. And then all these merchants contacted their processors and all these processors reached out to me and were like, really? Like, we don't have this information or we do have this information, but it's not digestible for our merchants or we don't have an interface where we can provide all of this data because they're in massive data files. Thanks a lot, Carice. But I do think it's really important. I mean, it started because there was a company, a, a gaming company that had small transactions you know, generally they were somewhere under $5, somewhere under, under 10, most were under 20. And they really didn't have a chargeback problem, but they started to notice that some banks were just declining every single transaction that any of their cardholders tried to issue against them. And looking at, you know, I said, well, look at the bins and, and take a look and make sure that these banks are, you know, really declining every single transaction. And they were. And I said, well, I think I'm guessing that you have a high you know, fraud rate. And this is something that Visa tracks. I think the other card brands do too. I think for MasterCard, it's called the Safe Report. And for Visa, it's the TC40s. And there are some payment processors that have integrated this into their system. I know that Stripe has early warnings on chargebacks. So often those are probably coming from the TC40 report. These are TC40 forms or what is filled out by the issuers when the cardholder claims fraud and not all fraud claims become chargebacks. And obviously not all chargebacks are fraud. So this can be an issue for smaller, for merchants with smaller average order values because they can start to see authorizations being declined because the banks are having to eat all these chargebacks. They identify the merchant as fraudulent because they're like, well, for this one merchant ID, we've had to write off thousands of dollars. So we're just not going to approve any. And this can be kind of detrimental to businesses. So it is something to look at. And if you have a payments department, chances are they're looking at that. If you don't, it doesn't hurt to do a bin search, you know, and look at the declines and see if there are patterns, right? Like if there's specific bins, the bank identification number, the first six digits of the card, if they're declining things over a certain amount, or if they're declining all transactions, or if there's an issue there. And sometimes you can contact someone at the bank for more information. 
Other times it's just automated. You have to really work on reducing your fraud claims on the issuer level because that report is shared with all issuers. It's fed into their system, especially for those that are using the same fraud system on the issuing side which yes, I do know what it's called, but not try so hard to be very agnostic and not name any company names on this podcast. But there is one main fraud provider that issuers use that I'll share that data. That's usually where it is. Long answer to a short question. This comes up fairly often that I thought that I would elaborate a little bit. So the next question, the answer is kind of broad, but it says, how do companies combat against abuse of friendly fraud, especially those companies with a fraud guarantee, like some of the card brands? Are there fraud technologies out there that support it? This is going to be a very nuanced answer, but it really depends on the type of friendly fraud you have. Are you having customers claim fraud? And then when you look at it, it really looks like they use their own card. Are you having issues with, you know, kids using their parents' card or spouses using their, you know, partner's card without their knowledge. Video gaming companies have very large problems with, you know, kids using their parents' card, obviously. That has different set of solutions than companies who have customers claiming fraud when not. Or, you know, please listen to my previous episode about chargebacks and friendly fraud or just fraud reason code chargebacks if you didn't already because That will help you as well with, you know, understanding friendly fraud and understanding that the fraud reason code has really become a catch-all and sometimes the cardholder never said the word fraud on the phone call. So that is something to keep in mind. It also really depends on what your goal is. Is your goal to save money and prevent the loss in the first place or is your goal to keep your chargebacks down? If your goal is to keep your chargebacks down, then there are services like pre-chargeback alerts that can be used to be able to reduce the number of chargeback instances to keep your ratio low. But if you're really looking to reduce the dollar amount, then you need to look at the root cause. It's similar to hostile fraud, looking at the root cause. What does your friendly fraud look like? What's causing it? Is it all on a specific, you know, product? Is it, you know, there's just looking for patterns really. And then looking upstream at how you can change customer behavior. This is something that I absolutely love to do and have done a lot in my consultancy over the years, you know, really doing an analysis on chargebacks and looking for root cause and then going back and, you know, changing a process or having conversations with customer service and finding out, why are people calling about this issue? Or, you know, maybe you need to describe something better on your website. Who knows? It can be very different for every company. It really varies based on your business model, what you're selling, who your target customers are, what your average order value is. There are so many different nuances to friendly fraud, just like there are with hostile fraud, right? Like an online gaming company is going to have a completely different type of fraud than a retailer that sells shoes. And an event ticketing company is going to have a different fraud problem than a dating site. You know, these are all things and it kind of goes the same for friendly fraud. So understanding that and then, you know, like I said, if reducing the payment losses or the dollar amount is your priority, then I think it's important to have a two-prong approach. Doing the root cause analysis, figuring out why your chargebacks are coming in, what are the patterns, how can you change that? And then also deploying a strategic response strategy on your chargebacks and doing it in a way that you're going to increase your win rate so that you can recover those losses. It's not 
easy, but it's definitely not impossible. I had a seven hour session with a client last week. It was actually really fun. I mean, I was exhausted at the end, but talking about their chargeback response strategy and how they can improve it. And it was so much fun to just like, you know, share with them the way the process works or share with them a different perspective on looking at chargebacks or responding to chargebacks and just seeing even via Zoom, the light bulbs going off and dots being connected. That is why I love to be a consultant. That's why I love to help people and share information. Not because I have to be right or I have to be the one providing the light bulb, but just the fact that there is a light bulb, the fact that there is information to share and when it is shared, it's valuable. That is one of the millions of reasons why I love this industry. (laughs) The majority of fraud technology companies out there are really looking at hostile fraud. It's very challenging to look at a transaction where the person is using all of their own information and, you know, shipping to their address or digital delivery to an email that's been around forever and being able to predict, okay, in three weeks, this person's going to call their bank and claim they didn't get it, or they're going to claim that it wasn't what they wanted or that it was fraud. It, it doesn't really exist there. I really actually think that one of the best things for friendly fraud is if you are outsourcing your chargebacks, that you're using a company that has really good reporting that allows you to see, I mean, down to the details, not just this is how many chargebacks you had, but like, what are the marketing campaigns that those chargebacks are tied to? What are the affiliate links that those chargebacks are tied to? What are the, all the other, the products, the customer service agent that, you know, talked to them? Like, is there a pattern there where somebody says they'll give them a refund and then the refund isn't processed? So they call their bank and issue, you know, credit not processed chargebacks. Like it can be so many different things. I have found so many different things when diving into the details, but having a provider that provides you with those detailed reports, if you're outsourcing it can be a game changer because it can actually really help you reduce them in the upfront and see those patterns. I think that that is the list of the questions that I was going to answer for the day. I do get so many more and I do have a lot of requests from merchants to uh, do another podcast episode on vendors behaving badly. (laughs) I, on my previous podcast, I had a podcast episode called merchants are from Mars vendors are from Venus. And I provided some tough love to actually both sides. Several people said that they felt like they heard my mom voice, which they probably did, but it's starting to be that time. I've actually gotten this request for a while. So I want to organize my thoughts on this topic. I want to be sensitive knowing that obviously, you know, commerce needs to happen and fraud technology is so important, but there are some products that are better than others. And there are sales tactics that are much better than others and their sales tactics that are much worse than others. And these are things that merchants are asking me to talk about. I just want to be thoughtful about how I present them, but giving you all a heads up that this is coming soon. (laughs) So with that, I'm going to wrap up my day. It's getting late, but I I'm really glad that I did this. I enjoy talking with you all and I appreciate you listening to this. I'm always really humbled by looking at the numbers of how many people do listen to this podcast weekly. So thank you so much for your support. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would just love it if you subscribe and if you can rate and review it, especially if you're on Apple podcast, that does help a lot of people that are similar to you find the podcast. I really appreciate it. That's kind of 
your way that you can thank me for the work that I do on this. So thanks again for listening. I am looking forward to bringing you an awesome interview next week, and I will talk to you next time. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.